Welcome to December. It's, it's Christmas season. The church is decorated beautifully, and it all points to Christmas Day, the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Now, every year around this time, as we start thinking about Christmas, uh, I'm, I'm reminded of a quote, one of my favorite quotes, uh, if not the favorite quote I have on the incarnation of Jesus, the 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 birth of Christ, the him coming in the flesh. And, and you might be surprised to hear that it's not by Charles Spurgeon. Uh, most of my favorite quotes would be uh, ascribed to him. This is by theologian Wayne Grudem. And he writes that the incarnation is by far the most amazing miracle in the whole Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. I wonder if if you've ever thought about that. The most profound miracle and the most profound mystery, and yet because Christmas is so common, celebrated by both Christians and everyone else who likes to be festive during this time of year, it all feels so common. Now, to some degree, we might even take for granted that God became man. I pray that we never get used to that. That's not just something that, well, yeah, that's, that's like any other story that we've heard. No, it's not. And it's for that reason that Advent plays a significant role for Christmas, and it's, it's why we choose to have an Advent sermon series every year. You see, Advent has to do with the arrival of a significant person or a significant event. It, it's all about anticipation. It's about longing. And as we read through the Holy Scriptures, we find that God's people are marked by longing. In the opening chapters of the Bible, we read of the creation of the world and the creation of humanity. We see a a perfect picture of what life could be, what life should be. A perfect relationship between God and his creation, God and his people. But we also see what's commonly known as the fall. The fall of humanity. Now this is the event in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve doubted God's word and rebelled against God's word. It was through their rebellion that sin entered the world. Now, you might remember uh, that Adam, Eve, and, and the serpent were cursed, but also there's a promise. There's a promise in that account of a coming redeemer, a promise of one who would come and restore and redeem all things. And so God's people waited. They didn't know how long to wait, but they waited and waited. Could it be Adam and Eve's children? Really quickly in the Bible, as you read it, it starts going lower and lower. A brother kills another brother. Then you go on to the next generation. Is there the Redeemer there? Will the Redeemer come? And then a prophet will come and share the story of God's grace and his kindness, God's judgment and his law and You wait and wait. And so the people of God waited with longing as they looked forward to the redemption of God. 
And so as a way to celebrate the historic arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, and then also to join along with the anticipation of God's people in the past, we remember and join in the anticipation. This year, our Advent series will look at selected passages from the book of Hebrews uh, as we uh, consider who is this baby that was born in Bethlehem? Who is the person of Jesus, the Son of God who was born in Bethlehem? Today, we'll consider the glory of Christ from Hebrews chapter 1. Next week, we'll look at the incarnation of Christ from Hebrews chapter 2. Mike will preach that sermon. Then Serge will preach uh, the following Sunday from Hebrews chapter 4 as we look together at the humanity of Christ. And then we'll end our Advent series on December 24th in Hebrews chapter 10 as I preach on the sacrifice of Christ. Glory, incarnation, humanity, and sacrifice. We can also think of it this way. The birth, the life, and the death of Jesus. Friends, as we prepare to go to God's word, would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for, for your, your revelation. We thank you for this morning that has started so wonderfully gathering together, thinking upon the work that you have done through your son, Jesus. Thank you that this morning our gathering together will end as we partake in the Lord's Supper. And and now we ask that you would continue to speak to us and reveal yourself to us through your word. We believe you are faithful to do so. And so prepare our hearts this morning. Give us ears to hear your voice. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Have your Bible with you. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You can follow along in the bulletin, uh, or I believe it's on the screen as well. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's read the entire passage, which is only four verses. Then we'll go through and work it together. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. This morning, we'll work through this passage uh, by considering two parts, the message and the messenger. The message and the messenger. And let's start with the message as we look again to verse 1. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. The only context that we need Uh, for this Advent series in Hebrews is that the author, who is unknown uh, to us, is writing to Jewish believers, right? Similar to the book of James, the original audience, the letter uh, that was uh, written and sent was originally intended for Jews, right? Jews who have put their faith in Christ, and so, uh, which, which means for us that they were familiar with the Old Testament, 
Again, it's helpful for us that we were just in the book of James. Uh, They're familiar with the prophets and the stories, and, and that's why he refers to their ancestors and to the prophets. Also, we see another connection mind that helps us understand the, the context and the original audience is that the opening of Hebrews has some similarity to the first words of Genesis, right? It, they both start with God and him speaking. And so he's making these connections intentionally. God spoke. Friends, that in and of itself is worthy of our praises. Again, it's something that we can easily take for granted, but there's so much for us to consider just by the fact that God spoke. Our God is a God who speaks. It's vital that we know that if God didn't speak, that we would have never known him. It's important for us to understand that truth because it affects what we believe and what we know about God. If God wasn't a God who spoke and he didn't choose to speak to us, we would never have known him. And so the fact that God spoke and that he speaks today tells us about who he is. It tells us that his character is one of love and care. The fact that God speaks tells us of his grace and his mercy. Right? We understand from the scriptures that God is far away from us. He's far removed. He's far above And yet he chooses to come close. He chooses to communicate. God spoke, this phrase that the author is using, tells us that the message of God is from God himself. He spoke by the prophets at different times and in different ways. If you're familiar with the Bible, you might remember with me of God speaking to Moses through a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. He spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice in 1 Kings chapter 19. He spoke to Isaiah by heavenly vision in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, it's true that he, he spoke in different ways to the prophets, right, as We consider just a few. But the idea of verse 1 is that his message was communicated differently at different times. And so this tells us what this is known as is progressive revelation. The message remains. It's always been the same. And the message is that we need saving and God alone saves. That's always been the message of God. It's what God's people in the Old Testament believed all the way until today. Right, that's the message of the promise to Adam and Eve. But as God spoke over the centuries and over the millennia, he made himself known more and more. We can think about the covenants, the Abrahamic, the Noahic, the Davidic. We can think about the law that was given. We can think about the history of God's people, how they both conquered and were also at different times conquered themselves. Right? In different times, in different ways. But the message remained. The message has always been of a great redemption through a great Redeemer. The message was of a Messiah who would conquer the darkness, the chosen one 
the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. Those are all the same phrase, the same title. Jesus, the Christ, the one who would defeat sin. The message of God is of a Savior who will restore and redeem what was lost. Now that message progressed and became clearer and clearer until its culmination, until it kind of reached its climax and its finalization in His Son. That's what we just read. Look with me to verse 2a. So if I ever say that, what that means is just the first part of the verse. So 2a will be the first part of verse 2. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God's message ultimately, finally, perfectly and completely comes by the son. Now again, it's helpful that we were just in the book of James because just last week, if memory serves me correctly, I usually forget the sermons shortly after. So if I ever ask you, hey, what what stands out to the sermon? You say, I don't know. I usually say, I don't remember either. But hopefully, you will have remembered over the weeks and months. But last week, we considered this phrase, the last days. You see, when Jesus came to earth, his life marked the transition between many things. It was the end of certain things and the beginning of others, and there was a transition. In some ways, we are still in transition. There are some things that are true, that have happened, but some things that are not already fully complete, right? We can think of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, We can think of the things that were past and the things that are yet to come. As Jesus' earthly ministry came to end and as he returned to heaven, we transitioned into a time period known as the last days. The the Hebrews were in the last days and, and we are still in the last days. The time period between the ascension of Jesus when he returned to heaven and the day that he'll return. That's the message. Now, who is the messenger? Jesus. Easy question, easy answer. The answer is usually Jesus in church. You can find your way to make that the the answer. But you still get points if you answer Jesus. Right? Who's the messenger? It's Jesus. And, And what we're about to read through is one of the most incredible descriptions of Jesus. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that we could spend months in just verses two and three. And so this morning, my challenge will to just spend minutes. These verses are often known as the sevenfold description of Christ. The sevenfold description. And the number here does seem significant. Remember the audience, Hebrews. Those who understood and believed in the Old Testament were familiar with the prophets, right? Christians with a Jewish background and upbringing. And now, numbers in the Bible don't always mean something. In most cases, when people say, well, this number meant this or that number meant that. I think what people are trying to do is to squeeze out meanings by studying numbers in the Bible. Even some would say they can find secret messages in God's word by considering numbers and studying numbers, which is not true. There are no secret messages. The message is clear. Jesus saves. He alone saves. We need his salvation. And yet the number seven, especially to this audience and to our context, is significant. Seven in the Bible is the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. 
And again, we see the connections that he's making in these opening words along with the opening words of Genesis. And we understand that God created all that is created in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. What does that symbolize? What, what does that mean? What is he showing? Well, it symbolizes perfection, symbolizes completion. And so what this speaks to is that the, gr- the grand and overall theme of not only this passage, but also the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is supreme. He is above all things. And, and here specifically, what we read in these verses is the supremacy of Christ as God's final word, right? At many times, in many ways, he spoke to us, but now, finally, completely, ultimately, he speaks to us through Jesus, who is God's final word. Now, again, we're not studying through the book of Hebrews, though that is up for consideration as one of the next books that we'll consider in the coming couple of years. Uh, But without getting to the whole of chapter 1, that's how we can understand verse 4. Look with me again to verse 4. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. This sevenfold description that we're just in just a minute going to take a look at shows us that Jesus is superior to everyone, superior even above the angels. And as the Son of God, his name is more excellent than theirs and other messengers and other uh, beings who were created. So let's consider together Jesus, the only begotten Son of God the Father, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Look with me to verse 2. Hebrews 1, verse 2. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him heir of all things and made the universe through Him. So the first of seven descriptions that we have is heir of all things. Christ is the heir of all things. The Son has the inheritance. And so this teaching moves from sonship, right, my son, to heirship, right, to inheritance. It goes from setting up the final messenger as God's son, and so it's fitting that he is the one who receives the inheritance, as it is in the culture, both then and and often in, in, in our day, even today. As the son and the creator, which we're going to look at next, Jesus is the natural heir. Listen with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not sure if they're on the screen. I don't think they are. They are. Wonderful. So you can follow along on the screen. I sent in the slides a bit late this morning. And so follow along. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, as Christ the Redeemer, which again is another description we'll consider here in just a minute, he has earned this inheritance. But what is his inheritance? There are several things that we see in the scripture, but among other things, we see in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are his inheritance. Paul says that we are the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
right? Not only are we his inheritance, which is too beautiful to think about in just the minutes that we have together, but we are also fellow heirs with him. You see, because we are united to Christ, what is true of him is true of us. And friends, this is, this is the power and the beauty of Christianity. Our life, the scriptures declare, is not our own. Our hope and our salvation, our justification doesn't come from within, but it comes from outside of us. Because he died, we have died along with him. Because he lives, we too have life. Because he is the heir of all things, we too will share in his inheritance. Number two, we read that Jesus, the Son of God, is the creator of all things. Listen to these couple of verses. John chapter 1, verse 3, which uh, was one of the verses that Hunter read for us this morning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing that was created has been created. Romans 11, verse 36. For from, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We can consider all the things that, that Christ partook and has created, but, but Jesus is referred to specifically here in our passage as the maker of the universe. And so we can think of that as our example. I don't know if you remember, I think it was last year, uh, when all those images from the James Webb Telescope came out. I don't know if you guys followed, followed that as, at all. Uh, most images before this, the images that came in from a kind of an updated, I don't know, uh, whatever, satellite camera. It's like a really big iPhone, I guess is, is how they can describe that, uh, with a really good zoom uh, feature. Uh, most images were from the Hubble Telescope, which were incredible. But, but the James Webb images were just something else. It's like comparing a black and white Polaroid from 50 years ago with, with a high-resolution image from today. And we were able to see, and, and people were, were uh, confronted with how the heavens declare the glory of God. There are countless galaxies. We are just in one. But there are countless galaxies and systems that span trillions of light years. Wonders that we will never see, never fully appreciate. And yet he created them all as a display of his glory. And not only that, he created you. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. The Greek word translated workmanship here in the original language is poema. That's where we get the word for poem. And so you were created in Jesus and by Jesus in the same way that a poet writes their poetry. Is that incredible? Let's keep working through these seven descriptions. Look with me to verse 3a, right? So the first half of that verse. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, 
sustaining all things by his powerful word. Let's start off with that idea of him sustaining all things. So we'll kind of begin with that one as our third description. Christ is the sustainer of all things, right? He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. Number three, if you're taking notes, he is the sustainer of all things. He's not only the creator, but he's a sustainer. This isn't a passive role. It's not like, uh, is it Atlas Shrugged, who just has the world on their back? It's not just, it just is happening. He's just there and everything kind of works. No, it's an active role. It's an active sustaining of his creation. That means that the gravity on earth is what it is and stays what it is because Jesus maintains it. That means that, uh, that the, the reason that water remains as H2O right, two hydrogen and one oxygen is because of Jesus' sustaining work. I don't have to fear that this might change mid-swallow to something else. We don't live in a world that is chaotic. That's because Jesus is a sustainer of all things. For Jesus to be the sustainer of all things, it, it speaks and tells us of his constant work. He tells us that he is faithful, that he doesn't neglect the tasks that he has. What that means is that he's also working in your life. Sometimes you might see it. You might see the work of Christ sustaining you and bearing fruit in your life. Often we don't. But he is the one who is keeping you. He is the one who will keep you to the very end. Number four. He's the radiance of God's glory. Again, months we could spend in this passage, and I feel like we're just flying through it, which we are, but hopefully we're getting a glimpse. That's all we can handle, a glimpse of God's glory. Number four, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And I love the wording here. It literally means he is the glory of God's glory. He is the glory of God's glory. That's more than a reflection. When we think of a reflection, we can think of the moon. Right? The light it gives, the light that we see, is, it's not generated within itself. It is reflected from the sun to us. But the glory of Jesus isn't just a reflection of God's glory. It's Christ's too. It's his radiance. We can look back to one of the early church fathers, St. Ambrose of Milan, and he explains it this way. He says, where there is light, there is radiance. And where there is radiance, there is also light. And so we cannot have light without radiance, nor radiance without light. Because both the light is the radiance, and the radiance is the light. What's, what's he saying here? Well, very simply, Jesus is God. Right? He, he is the same source, the same substance. And the next description strengthens this teaching as we consider that Jesus isn't just an image bearer like we are, right? We are created in the image of God. He is the exact expression of God. But before we go to that fifth description in this sevenfold description of Christ, I want to think about glory just a bit more. We can think of Moses when he was on the mountain speaking with God. And he asked God, Show me your glory. And the conversation went basically that that's not possible. If you saw my face, you would, 
you would die. And yet in God's kindness and grace, uh, grace, he let Moses catch a glimpse of his glory. As he passed by, he saw just the, the residue, if you will. And we know that Moses was changed if we continue reading in Exodus. His face reflected the glory of God in such a way that, that, that people had to put a veil over his face. As I think about that, as I think about Christ being the radiance of God's glory, I, I wonder if you have seen God's glory in Jesus Christ. There is no description that's sufficient enough for us to describe a real encounter with Jesus. But the transformation is evident, isn't it? You can see it in others' lives. You can maybe even see it in your own life. You see, this truth of Christ as the radiance of God's glory was celebrated and was proclaimed throughout the history of the church. We can hear it even in the Nicene Creed. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Number five, the exact expression of his nature. The exact expression of his nature. If you lose track in following along, you can just, I'm just listing them one by one from verses two and three. Again, this isn't about someone really similar, but exact in nature. And that's why in John chapter 14, verse nine, Jesus can declare, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Those are words of blasphemy if they weren't true. And that's why he was crucified because they, the religious leaders of the time didn't believe Jesus' word. They thought he was making himself on the same level as God, which, which he was. And they're blasphemous if they weren't true, but they are true because he is truth. Now when we dwell on this reality and reflect on the Holy Scriptures, we're reminded, aren't we, of God's unmatched and undeserved grace. It's almost too much to consider what God did to make himself known to us, to let us know him. God became man. First Timothy Chapter 6, verse 16, Paul tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light and that no one has seen him or can see him. God dwells in unapproachable light, right? The light of his glory would blind us. It would even destroy us because we can't stand in our sinful nature, in our sinful state before the presence of a holy God. We are unable to approach. We can't know God, the scriptures declare. But because of Jesus, we can know him. Because Jesus came, we are able to have a restored relationship. Jesus, the light of the world, stepped into darkness. He opened our eyes so that we can see. That's what we're called to remember this Christmas season. Let's read the second part of verse 3, and we'll continue with the last two descriptions. After making purification for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Number six, he made purification. Not only do we see great power in Jesus, who is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, but also we see great love. Great love in Jesus who made purification for our sins. This is a month worth of sermons here. Or three to four coffees, if you want to get together, we can get a group and talk about this. Right? We're going to get into it a lot more in the last sermon in this series. Uh, what, what has Christ done to purify us, to redeem us? But what's, described, what's being described here is a final cleansing. Right? Jesus not only redeemed us by his blood, which was the payment price for our salvation, he purified us through his death. He has washed us white as snow, taken a heart of stone and give us, given us a heart of flesh. What this is declaring here in this, almost just like a side comment, and he purified us um, after making purification for sins. It's almost like he's inserting that to get to the next part. But as you think about it, this is speaking of Jesus' death was a single and final sacrifice that cleansed us from within. And number seven, seated on the throne. This imagery and this closing description speaks of Jesus as ruler. He has completed all that he needs to finish, and so he sits down. His work is done. Jesus, the Son of God, the final messenger, is the heir. He is the creator and the sustainer. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact impression of the Father. He is the redeemer who has made purification for our sins. He is the ruler. He is supreme. And, and here's where I want to leave you with this morning. Jesus, the, the Son of God, isn't only the messenger. But as God's final word, he is also the message itself. You see, yes, it's true, Jesus gives life, but, but life isn't separate from him. Right? There is no life apart from Jesus. And so, where is life? He is life. In him, there is life. And so Jesus doesn't give us life. He gives us himself. He doesn't give us resurrection. He is the resurrection. He doesn't only declare a message of hope. Friends, He is our living hope. Who is this glorious God of ours? He is the one who came down from heaven to redeem and to restore. You see, the message of Hebrews, the message of Christmas and of Christianity is a message of hope. Some 2,000 years ago, and about 246 kilometers away from here, I looked it up, I'm not sure if the roads are still the same or what's open, what's not. Well, I know it's not, everything. But if, we, if, we, if things were open, 246, seven kilometers from here, Jesus was born into this world. He was born to live in your place so that he could die in your place. If you're here with us this morning, you don't know that. Friend, this is what Christianity is all about. God who came into the world he created, 
to save his people from death, to save his people from his own judgment by taking on his own judgment. It's too wonderful for us to think about. The Bible declares that if you believe in the words and the works of Jesus, that he is indeed the Son of God who died on the cross, who was buried and who was raised from the grave, that you will be forever united with him and to him and in him. And so you will forever, because Christ is seated on the throne, you will forever have hope and peace and joy. I pray that if you don't know that and if you haven't believed that you would believe this morning. And for those who do believe, brothers and sisters, let us remember the hope that we have in the Son. May we rest in Him in this restless world. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are glorious. You are marvelous and wonderful. And though we have your description here, this beautiful sevenfold description, Father, we recognize and declare that you are too marvelous for words. Lord, thank you for the true hope that we have. This isn't just another message. This isn't just a a wish, Lord, but this is a reality. Thank you for helping us to remember that this morning. Thank you for the gift of your Son. May you receive all glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.